0: Welcome to Grief is my side hustle. I am your host, Megan Beard Jarvis, and I am delighted to be back from a little hiatus and be recording with Reed Peterson, who is the founder and creator of Grief Refuge. Reed, thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: Well, thank you, Megan. You hold and host some meaningful conversations and I'm grateful to contribute.
0: Oh, that's so nice. I'm just going to read, um, your bio real quick for people. I'm terrible at this, but you know, I'm practicing and learning grief refuge content is created by Reed Peterson. Reed achieved a master's degree in transpersonal psychology from the Institute of transpersonal psychology and is certified in death and grief studies by the center for loss and life transition. After losing his biological father to suicide in 2006 and his stepfather to cancer in 2016, Reed felt a calling to help the grieving find peace and purpose after loss. Wow. You know, you, you've earned your stripes with the loss that you described there. Can you, can you tell folks a little bit, like when we were talking off might just a second ago, I said, oh, transpersonal psychology. That's something I know something about, but I imagine some of my listeners don't. And I'd love to know what your experience was, you know, when there's multiple loss in your life, I think people are able to say this one felt like this and this one felt like this. And you have the experience with, I imagine, you know, um, a slower death to cancer and then a sudden death with suicide. So if you just wanna take us into, you know, how do you come into the world of grief and loss and how did it become maybe your passion and life work?
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna go back to grad school actually. And so in 2006, when I was in grad school, that is also the same time that my dad took his life. Yeah. And what was interesting was when, when he died, it was a shock, but cognitively, I was always preparing myself for the moment. Now, my dad had an adult life of suffering. He mm-hmm struggled with post-traumatic stress, he was an alcoholic, and there was a lot of challenges in his life. And he dug himself a deep hole, metaphorically. Yeah. And I remember as his son and being an adult, I mean, I cared for him tremendously. And we had, I, th- I would argue we had a good relationship you know, but he, he opened up to me more than he probably opened up to many people in his life. But there was just so much heaviness and so much suffering and struggle. And so when my dad died, I actually felt authentic relief. I was yeah. that cliche statement of like, he's in a better place that couldn't have felt more true for me. And yeah. when I thought about uh, my dad's spirit and my beliefs in the afterlife. And, and so I felt that way strongly for probably six months. And Mm. then I started to recognize, okay, I'm actually feeling a little bit guilty for Mm. feeling that sense of relief.
0: Mm.
1: And then that little guilt grew into more guilt. And boy, did it get the best of me. So then I actually started feeling a lot of sadness and started feeling like I'm kind of messed up, (laughs) but progressed through graduate school. And then what was interesting, Megan, is when my stepfather died and he for me, I had this perception of him of like just a true soldier. He had a six month diagnosis. Uh, prognosis, excuse me, to live after he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and he battled it for eight years. And then, when he died, I was really sad at first, and I remember getting the phone call from my sister and pulling over and needing definitely several moments to to gather myself before I could drive again, but. I thought about like, well, my biological father has died, so I've kind of, I'm experienced. I'm a seasoned veteran (laughs) in losing a father. Yep. And I thought, well, I've been there, done that, so I should be good with the loss of my stepfather, Warren, and well, I was pretty wrong. (laughs) Mm. What really hit me hard in grieving the loss of Warren was, to my surprise, a, a Tremendous amount of loneliness I felt. I have a really healthy relationship with my wife. And at the time of his death, I could only really find myself going to the shores of the beaches where I live and just sitting there and just staring off into the water and staring off into the horizon and just feeling like shit, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, for a really, really long time. And so, so different grieving Warren's loss and doing my comparison to grieving my biological father's loss and just being really surprised for several years after that. Truthfully, I'm still trying to make sense of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Gosh. You know, first of all, before I forget to ask, what was your, what was your biological dad's name?
1: everybody called him butch his name is donald but he went by butch
0: oh i love that thank you i really i really appreciate you as a you know someone with a clinical background saying that losing butch and losing warren were two totally different experiences you thought you knew something and the experiences sort of taught you that you didn't and i I just think that there can't be enough of that out there because my experience with grievers is that everybody feels like they're reinventing the wheel and that the fact that they feel that way and that sort of existential loneliness that you're describing makes them feel crazy and like they're failing. And, you know, my big soapbox is look, really, that's normal you know, I I say it all the time. It shocked the hell out of me to have my knees go out from underneath me after my mom died. I mean, I had, I had multiple friends die. I have early childhood loss. My dad had died two years before my mom. I mean, I just really was completely and totally shocked. And I think one of the things about telling stories, which I'll never get sick of about how we carry loss are the honest pieces that are actually kind of a, there's a, there's a through line. Many, many people talk about the existential loneliness, even though they're surrounded by people. And so to me, that's a norm of grief, whether you have a spiritual center, whether you've read a million books, whether you have lots of deep relationships, the truth of the matter is you lose your personal by yourself. And it drives me crazy when people are like, Oh, I'm here with you. Like, You really aren't though, not because I'm not loved, because what I have lost is mine alone, unique to lose. And you said the same thing about guilt, which is just I wrote a piece a long time ago, which is like guilt is part of grief. I'm I'm sort of studied in in parts work and which is Dick Schwartz's IFS stuff. And you know, what he talks about are these parts of us that come in to protect us from harder feelings. And I think the guilt I have suffered and I, I love that you said you still suffer with it because so do I, I still have PTSD symptoms. And I feel like it's really important to say that to people when I have a hard week, I try to go on Instagram and say like, guys, it's brutal this week because it's non-linear, but it's, you know, the guilt for me is useful and it's usually distracting me from like, God, I really miss them. Or maybe even like need them a little bit this week and I can't have them so it's easier to, to just wish that I had done things differently or felt differently about things. So gosh, I'm really appreciative just out of the gate with what you've shared. Where has it taken you in terms of, you know, how did you soothe yourself? What are the tools you use? Was study part of that for you? Was I want to talk about you have this extraordinary app that's out there is is creating part of that? Like, how how did you how have you managed your your feelings?
1: Well, I guess the the story goes. I preoccupied myself with academic studies after yeah. losing Butch, my my father, and so I, I kept busy. Looking back upon it, because it's at the time of this recording, it's almost sixteen years um, yeah. since he died. I I think I really embrace denial.
0: Yeah. It's a tool.
1: <laughs> it's, it's a, a tool. tool. It
0: helps us. Yeah, absolutely. And,
1: and then I tell you what, and then six months later, believe it or not, um, while I was still in graduate school, one of my classmates, he took his life. Ugh. And it was a really strange and awkward awakening for me because there was a memorial held through the community, the student community, for him. And I found myself just appalled at this memorial. Uh. And the reason why was because I was amongst a lot of my peers and a lot of my colleagues who were all, you know, working towards either uh, clinical degrees in psychology or transpersonal degrees. And I, I sat here in shock and disbelief saying nobody is allowing themselves to mourn. Yeah. Everybody here is really focused on the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And John, the friend who took his life, he only died like two weeks ago. And so I, I found myself having a lot of judgment, but I also recognized, Oh, for me, who wants to mourn the loss of John, who wants to cry and feel sad and feel pain and hurt. There's, there's no social support in this experience. Yeah. And so having, going through that and and recognizing that for John, I think there was a piece of me that said, Hey, I might need this for my dad too.
0: Mm. Wow. I do think sometimes there are, there have been experiences in my life where it's almost like I have an outsized anger reaction, like a, like a push away. And pretty much anytime I have an outsized anger reaction, it's because there's some pain that's gone unattended. So I'm not going to say I'm perfect at it, but I'm better at it than I was in my twenties. It's sort of looking and saying like, what is it that, what, what is this telling me about myself? And it sounds like seeing another death by suicide allowed you to sort of feel some of the underneath the denial tool that boy I might need and were you 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 might need something for yourself was there something then that you developed was there a connection that you were able to have with others did you i, I this podcast used to be called grieve as a verb and one of the things that i think is really important is to tell people what grieving can look like because mm-hmm. the question that people ask me the most is sort of like what do you mean by grieve like aside from crying what are you even talking about mm-hmm. and I just love that question I love it because that also the 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 back of that question is well he went to his father's funeral I saw him cry I think he's better and you and I know, you know, even 16 years out, I'm sure you think about Butch all the time, that's with some element of pain. It's just not how it works. So so were you able to find something either for your classmate who had died or, or sort of going back underneath the denial stuff? Were you able to find some tools that helped?
1: Yeah, I think it started with the awareness, and then peeling back some of the layers, and giving myself that permission to to mourn. I take a traditional sense. I mourn is for me. Mourn is the expression of the grief-related thoughts yeah. and feelings. So grief being internal, mourning being external. And for me, I remember just con- confiding with friends who knew John too, who were really willing to hold space for each other and Mm. talk and, and verbalize, you know, what was upsetting or what was painful. And so for John, the friend who died by suicide, that was a big part of the tools used for processing with my dad. It was a little bit different. Um, I tried to really connect with my brother. Uh, My brother and I were really close growing up. And my brother has a little bit of, I'll call it a gift, some sense of mediumship. Mm. And so, you know, that took an interesting turn because I I don't have any personal experience with mediumship, but my brother doesn't do this professionally. It's just something that's kind of, he's been connected to in his life. And so I took a unique approach in trying to better understand some of like what happened through some of the communication that my brother was Mm. getting from my dad and so that was a really interesting journey and but in addition to that at that time of my life I I really took to journaling I took to writing more than anything and so that helped me process a lot of my grief um, for the loss of my father
0: and and it sounds like some of that was just sort of instinctive to that reaching out and connecting with your brother and I I love everything that you just described. I mean, the mediumship component, which I've been pretty open on the podcast and in general, that I would prefer to not believe in signs. I would be more comfortable with dead is dead is dead. I like the math on that. It makes me sleep at night. That's not been my experience. My experience is that there's a lot of energy out there and, you know, I believe in the quantum physics of things. So I, so I love that you bring that up as a grieving process, because again, I think there's a lot of judgment that goes into, how people choose to process out and support their feelings. And it's like anything else, you know, if you find support in acupuncture, then acupuncture works. If you find support in mediumship, mediumship works. And there are lots of things that I don't know the neuroscience behind or can't explain that I have had my own experience with and that people have come back and reported to me works. And I like the idea of it being sort of a progression that we, that as we continue to grieve that we need different supports at different times. And I did want to just circle back and say, because you and I were smiling at each other, you know, a lot of people's story is something terrible happened. They threw themselves into work, whatever work looked like. And then sometimes inside that story, there's this like hint, you didn't say it, but this, there's this hint that's, that's sort of like the wrong thing that they should have faced their feelings right then. And I just wanna say this out loud for our listeners that they, that there is an intuition, a natural intuition that your body has energetically about how to grieve. And so when people tell me that they couldn't, they couldn't, my feeling about that is, then you probably shouldn't. And my experience with grief is it, it will come and get you, you know, it's not going to just not be attended to, but that for some of us, when we think about sort of, you know, what our, what our neurological system can handle for some of us, the idea that they threw themselves into X, Y, and, you know, home renovation, education, taking care of someone else that may have been the life support line that they needed. And it is not uncommon for me to have someone come 10 years down the line with a whole bunch of physical symptoms and maybe disturbed sleep and, and a lot of tension or anger in their body and have no idea that what they're holding is grief, partly because we haven't done great education, but I just really appreciate you saying, you know, that, that, you had to come back around for it because I think that's the honest truth. I think that's true for most of us. I'm two and a half years out from my mom dying suddenly. And I still don't think I know what I'm doing. I mean, I still, I'm like, well, that's how I handled last week. And this week, this is what I'm doing. And you know, my, it, it feels like very changing winds at times. This worked this week, it's not working this week. I don't, I don't have the right feeling for that this week. And Netflix really burying myself in entire series of television has been a great project to help me manage my, my grief.
1: Right. I also like hearing how you say it, because to me, it doesn't, it sounds like you're saying that without judgment. And I was actually going to ask you earlier in our conversation about how it can be so easy for the inner critic or, you know, self-judgment to really kind of jump on. At us, I don't know, you know, I've, I've put a lot of thought into it as far as like is, is part of that, because I don't think there's an absolute, but is part of that, because we're often in life, we're often comparing ourselves to others constantly. So therefore, do we compare the way we grieve to the way others grieve? And, you know, you don't see or feel or hear or taste or smell what happens inside people's bodies. So if they put on, you know, some kind of persona, Or they're armoring themselves uh, very much so. Is it easy for me as a griever to look at someone else and say, well, they seem to be doing okay. I think I should be too. And therefore I start repressing, you know, some of the grief symptoms or I do other things to, you know, minimize my experience. And now I'm ultimately feeling more pain as a result of that.
0: You know, and Western culture is worse at this, I think, because there are other cultures where, you know, built inside the cultural grieving process are days on end, months on end, clothing and rituals, where it's expected that you're going to show and demonstrate expressions of grief. So I do, I, I love your question. It was such a gr- great question and i also think inherent in the question is a little bit the answer which is even we grievers pathologize grief right mm-hmm. we do not want to feel bad and it is very very easy to quickly act as though that's some sort of you know human failing that you feel bad and i just think that is like a complete lack of education craziness And there's a book, you may have heard me talk about it on the podcast, The Grieving Brain by Mary Frances O'Connor, who's a, she was a guest and she is a neuroscientist. and, And essentially what she was saying is the minute you have a profound loss, your brain has to update the entire system, which is why you do that thing where you go to sleep and then you wake up in the morning and you forget that the person has died because your brain is not done updating the data. But imagine, you know, so that's why it is similar to losing a limb is because everything that you navigate feels slightly different. That's why everyone says there's a before and after, which is a question I always ask my, in my writing workshop is tell me about your before and after moment. You know, the moment that you look at it and you think that's before, and this is after that's the fault line of my life. And, you know, I, I think if we were able to say it's a stage of life, the way I often say, I think it's similar to puberty. You know, we don't look at kids and say like, why do you have so much acne? Like we know why they have acne, they have crazy hormones going on and they're growing in their sleep. Grief is a lot like that. I think particularly in the intense early days. And I think even those of us that are grieving are judgmental. I mean, I certainly know that's true. While I did I had terrible PTSD after my mom died. I knew exactly what it was because that's what I treat. I aggressively sought treatment sort of, you know, I tried really hard, except some days I didn't. So even though I knew I was ill, getting more ill, I didn't want that to be the case. And so I, you know, had little fits and spurts. And then eventually my body was like, we're, we're done trying. You have to, There has to be more help, which is what which is what I mean when I say to folks, listen, here's what I know from my personal experience. The grief will insist on being addressed. Whether you spend two decades drinking to numb yourself, you will not outrun it completely. It's just not possible. Can you tell us a bit about your app? Because I think every one of us who goes through a profound loss also has that making meaning moment, right? Which is like, how am I going to demonstrate? I think the only other time in my life I felt the earth shatter was the first time one of my kids was born. And I was like, nothing will ever be the same. But unlike death, I had a baby. So people were like, how's your life? I'm like, look, I have a baby in my hands. Like everything is different. I think sometimes we have a fantasy that we're going to change, we're going to turn to the left and do something deeper, more meaningful, or never waste a moment. (coughs) And of course, that's not what happens. But there are some folks where they turn to the left and that left is a great direction for them. And they do start to create things and do things that are maybe the transformation of some of the energy around grief and loss. But I'd love I'd love for you to talk about how did that, how did your app come about? You know, I know you have a partner who you do it with. Just tell us all about it.
1: Okay. Well, going back to after Warren died and experiencing the immense loneliness, I knew I had to get some help. I just kind of felt like I can't do this alone. And so in my local community, I did join a grief support group uh, through one of the hospice here. And then I also sought out a grief counselor, and the group met for eight weeks, I think. And then I worked with the counselor. Well, um, still to this day.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) And but what was interesting was after a while, I I I was paying attention to how I felt, and I said, "Well, here's here's the thing for me. Like, I feel I think I was looking for relief." relief from the loneliness. And so I feel that sense of relief, you know, after I go to group or after I meet with my counselor and it lasts about 16 to 24 hours. Yes. And then I kept asking myself, well, what do I do in the meantime? And I just wasn't as inclined or drawn to read about grief at that time. That's changed for me now. So at that time, really, what was available was reading either a book or yeah. reading blogs. And so I kind of held that question inside yeah. of me for a few years, which was what, what happens in the in-between. And then fast forward a couple of years where I started to recognize like what I refer to as a calling there was a this a voice inside of me that said hey reed you do have healing qualities within you you know maybe it's time to start utilizing them and so grief came to me i was you know i'll speak for my mom and say and i was her greatest companion through the loss of her husband warren they were soulmates and my mom really really struggled for a long time yeah, yeah. And so me being her one of her five kids who doesn't have his own kids, I was more available. So I knew the evenings were tough for my mom. So I'd call her a lot and we'd talk and I'd companion her. And so I started thinking about, hey, grief support may be a good way to do this, but please don't take any offense to this, Megan. But even though I went to school to be a psychologist, I just Never really connected with the mental health model.
0: One hundred percent, I hear you. One hundred percent. I'm not offended.
1: <laughs> and so I looked. Yeah. I looked for a, a unique way to provide more support. And I was going through trainings through the Center for Loss and Life Transition. I started to realize people as I'd give presentations or, you know, say things during breaks and after. People would say, pay me compliments and say, yeah. I just got to tell you, your voice is really soothing. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, there might be something there. And, and then in one of the classes, a colleague said to me, same thing. And then she said, have you ever thought about like doing meditations on the call map? Oh and I was God, like, I love this. you know what? like maybe the calm app should have a category for grief. And so I looked into it and I even got in touch with some of, you know, the higher ups at sure. Calm, the meditation app, but they weren't going to focus on it as being like a category of support, even though they now offer some meditation, Yeah, they do. They, they partnered with some great people. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm glad they did that, but I, at the same time that all this is going on, a dear friend of uh, my wife's, her best friend, who is a, a very successful life coach, she challenged me and she said, Do it. Hey, hey, maybe you could do better. And I'm like, Do better than calm? Like, yeah, right. And she's like, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm not talking about that. She's like, Maybe you can provide a grease support app yourself. And I said, Oh, I've never thought about that. And so I did a little bit of market research and it led to an opportunity. And at the time of our recording, the grief refuge app is almost a year old.
0: Amazing. That is amazing. I, I love the breadcrumbs in the story. I think, you know, again, when we're able to attend to sort of where we really are there, I do think sometimes what grief, what the grief inside us needs, there are some breadcrumbs about that. And it's interesting because I was saying to my husband recently, my father, my father's entire family is from Ireland and I don't know. I, it was St. Patrick's Day and I saw something and then, you know, a cousin reached out and I was like, oh, I think we need to go to Ireland. And I had been really thinking about my den. And as soon as I was like, oh, I think we need to go there. It all got quiet inside my system. And I was like, oh, that's it. I need to go be with his extended family. And I don't know what that breadcrumb will do. I just know that it has to be the next right thing because my system got quiet instead of sort of the weird little like lost my wallet feeling that it can sometimes have. Particularly around my dad, I wasn't as close to him as my mom. And so when I feel sort of the edgy, sharp corners of the grief around him, it often, it, it, often, it does feel like a little message of some kind. And I just love hearing the breadcrumbs in this. Like people were referring to how soft your voice is and that that is comforting and that, you know, you went the natural route, which is talk to the people who do the thing. And then suddenly someone is coaching you and get, you know, planting an idea in your head. And then here we are, and it's been in existence for a year. That is just a really, it's a, extraordinary story. Do you yourself use meditation? Do you find guided meditation for your grief helpful? Is that a technique
1: for you? Well, the, it's yes in the short run, but I I'll be honest, I use meditation more for kind of my own mental health and well-being, more yeah. so than focused on grief. These days for grief, I've connected with so many people through my trainings that are fellow companions on the journey and they just have really powerful stories. And so I meet with them once a week and we discuss a book that we're currently reading and I'll put air quotes around that because what, uh, what we really do is we share our stories and we we basically support each other.
0: (laughs) What book club really reads the book? come on. <laughs> right. it's not, okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm in book clubs. We read the books. You said a couple of things that I wanted to just highlight, but you did mention that the, that the desire to connect to others was, you know, significant and important to you. And I think people on my podcast have heard me talk about Stephen Porges and the brain science behind that using the ventral part of our brain to connect as a way of feeling that less lonely, but also feeling more resourced. And so I, when I'm doing writing workshops, I'm I'm asking people to write for process for themselves, but it's so much richer when they're willing to share it because you can see people, you know, the thing that we need, because again, the conversations are too few and far between, but we need the me twos of it cause it makes us feel less crazy. It makes us feel held and seen and known in a way we can't do for ourselves. So I really love that about writing, you know, writing is something that comes up a lot for people. And there's a lot of neuroscience about just the actual graphic of taking your narrative story and writing it down so that your brain doesn't have to like travel down that pathway a hundred thousand times a week. But also being able to share that so that other people can feel encouraged to share their story. It's just this, you know, it's like building a stairwell. And I find that really amazing. I'm thinking about my sort of grief community myself. And it's surprising because it isn't always the people that you would have immediately thought of. And for me, I, you know, I feel like I'm doing air quotes, but like very close to people I haven't even met before on account of the sharing and the caring about each other's experiences. And I find that to be really amazing and sort of like, you know, a secondary gift and, you know, the, the traumatic growth instead of the simple traumatic loss of things.
1: It's very well said. Yeah. Powerful. It sounds extremely powerful.
0: Yeah. Tell people what transpersonal psychology is just so that they can know. I know I'm going to get some emails about this. People are always asking me, Megan, what are you trained in? And I'm like, oh, I'm trained as a social worker, but I also have a master's degree in child development. And I took a million trainings that, you know, I just paid for out of pocket to train in all these things. So the answer of like, what is the training is always very hard, but, but your degree is something I know I'm going to get a couple of emails and people are going to say, what does that even mean? So tell (laughs) us about that. And how did you choose it?
1: Okay. Well, I'll give you a reads, a very opinionated version of what it means.
0: I I can't (laughs) wait.
1: It's kind of the cheaters way to the mountaintop of higher consciousness. Why is it a cheaters? Because I thought it was going to be a blend of like Eastern and Western studies of the practices that, you know, alter our states of consciousness and help us evolve yeah. ourselves as beings. But when I was in school, I learned that a lot of it was the study of like using drugs. <laughs> so I was like, oh, MDMA, LSD, psilocybin. It's all hip. It's very hip
0: now. Everybody's talking about that now.
1: Yeah, it's it's a big deal, and, and I and I think it has a purpose now. To all of you listening, wondering like, am I just a druggie? No, I actually didn't <laughs> embark in all these processes. I was more interested in the study of how it changed our brains and how it changed our self concepts and how it evolved us as human beings. So, more traditionally, I think transpersonal just kind of means like that that other realm of consciousness that impacts or influences. How we think, how we feel, and the belief systems we create as we live life more thoroughly. So, oh, thir- I'm so glad. The, third, I asked you that the question. third dimension to consciousness.
0: I didn't know that because when I was in social work school, transpersonal psychology was also, it was like a field of concentration. But I, I took one class, but it was much more like a spirituality class than it was anything having to do with psychedelic drugs or, you know, which, Again, there, there is a whole movement towards using those things to unlock trauma and people feel very strongly that it's really powerful. I happen to know very little about it. It isn't a modality that I'm trained in, but I'm that is so interesting that that was your experience. I picked social work. I called it the quick and dirty way <laughs> to becoming a therapist. I really wanted to be a therapist and I just looked at the program that looked like it was gonna be the fastest and i either went to the classes or i read the books i didn't do both because i just had a life but since then and i imagine you would say the same once you're out of school it's not like being a doctor i think where you get everything that you need to know in school and it takes forever and then you're trained i mean there's a all i've taken every trauma training i can get my hands on since then and one of the things that's exciting about this field Is not, you know, not only do you not have to pick just one thing, you get to have a basket of things, but you can learn across cultures. And, you know, once you're, once you're allowed to do your job through licensing or credentialing or whatever it is, you get to sort of pick and choose. And I am definitely a person who loves as much Eastern medicine. You know, I'm talking to people about psychotropic medicine that is being prescribed by a psychiatrist as often as I am talking about Reiki and cupping and because I just believe mostly what I believe grief is, is a mother load of energy that sort of, you know, falls into our arms like a watermelon and we have to figure out how to navigate it. And anything anyone tells me helps them. I believe it helps them, including when it means that it, you know, might be that they're denying it for a little while. I did want to highlight because I really loved the way that you described it, that grief is the internal experience and that mourning is the external experience. I, we, on this podcast, we sort of use lots of different languages, but that's just a very clear sort of math equation of how to describe, you know, that grief is maybe a much more personalized individual experience. And that mourning is the experience of being able to do it collectively and I'm just curious what your experience has been during COVID, because a lot of that social structure stuff, a lot of the connection that you and I are talking about, people have had to be much more deliberate. So, you know, are, are you finding people are reaching out more to you? Or are you finding people are struggling more? What does it look like from your perspective?
1: Well, it's, it's very technological, you know, I'm grateful for the tools we now have on the internet because- I guess they've been coping mechanisms themselves for, you know, a lot of collective grief experiences. And I know it's just not the same, but at least it's something because you know, what, what's the alternative, like almost like feeling like you're living in a cave. And I think that would be like even that much more isolating and painful, heavy, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people have in my community, uh, physical community a lot of people have said they've now felt like you know kind of like this concept of COVID's over I don't know if that's true or not but they feel like they're not as threatened to now do social things with people you know in their circles and networks but I personally Megan I still feel like I'm impacted I still feel like I'm uncomfortable in large group settings. I, I think COVID has had an impact on me as far as like, almost like trying to keep my mouth shut more, say less and listen more. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that in the work that I do, um, and grief support, like, I feel like that's like a good skill. (laughs) So maybe I keep trying to improve that. But I also recognize like, I just don't want to say as much as I used to before COVID came. And I don't know if that's a common experience for people. Um, Maybe a lot of people want to say more because they felt like they weren't able to say enough during COVID.
0: (laughs) It's such an interest. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really taking that in because it's interesting. I, I, I think people have described to me, I have about 20 clients that I see a week. And I think people are, and have been describing to me that their energy is different And that sort of just being out anywhere is more energetically expensive than it ever was before. And I think about, I have three kids and I think about like when they started preschool, you know, they would go to preschool for like three hours and come home and eat, you know, 20 crackers and then take a nap. Like they had just run a marathon. And largely, I think it's because there's so much new stimulus, right? Like they have to stand in line. They don't know how to open that cabinet. They're not supposed to talk. They've got to keep their hands to themselves. And I I feel like COVID has asked that of us over and over and over again. Like it used to be fine to say hi to your neighbor when you were walking your dog. Now you have to cross the other side of the street. And, you know, it used to be okay to go to the grocery store, and now it's not. And I think, I think now that people are coming back out into the world, like I was at an executive retreat this weekend. And I, I mean, I, when I went to bed at night, I went I closed the blinds that was completely black. It was like a sensory deprivation chamber, just because I haven't been in a room where that many people were talking in such a long time. I don't know that my body was hyper alert, but it was, it was responsive to it. And it is interesting because I am wondering whether or not that's the right way for me to be. Hmm. Now that I've had another way, it is an interesting question to sort of wonder like, what is the energy that matches me the right way? And, you know, one of the things that I write about and I'm concerned about is that we really are social creatures. And there's, uh, there's energy that you and I can have looking at each other over zoom, but it's not the same as being in a room together. And when something like grief needs to be witnessed and held and validated, you know, I believe we do that better in person, but there is this, I'm not going to call it a movement, maybe like a belief that people have that staying home has been good for them. Hmm. And I believe it likely has, because I think our pendulum particularly in this country Hmm. of how much hustle we have is like a little nuts. Hmm. But I don't think being at home all the time is good for us. So this, I'm really interested in talking to lots of different companies about sort of their formulas. Or how to bring and entice people back into the workplace. Hmm. Certainly just telling them to come back is not working as some big firms have seen because their employees are like, yeah, we're not doing that. But it is an interesting thing when you think about it in terms of energy, just how much talking, how much movement, how much outside, how much are we doing? It's really, I think a time of reflection. And, you know, I, and I continue to hope like a time where we are going to be looking and thinking about grief differently Mm -hmm. as a, a collective experience that we all have to be able to, you know, hold and know, because just the percentage of people in this country that are now grieving is so much higher than it was three years ago.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Where is your work taking you right now? Are you working on the app? Are you doing a lot of reading? Are you training in other things? Tell us for folks who like want to know more about what you're doing and how to connect with you, how, 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 would they do that?
1: Sure. I guess my focus is on grief refuge because yeah. it is that filler in the in-between and answers that question of what do I do now? it's It's that tool or that resource that helps provide support when people aren't meeting with support providers in person. And so I can you know I, I get constant feedback that it's really helpful in the oh, interim. God. And so it's almost like this ally for professionals such as yourself. And so now, it's a big commitment, so it requires a lot of content creation and yeah. content distribution. So I'm I'm always focusing on that of things to provide the best content as possible, most supportive and validating and just helping someone feel held, you know, in their grief journey. The and we're always trying to come up with improved features because the the grief refuge app is a conglomerate of about seven features. And one of them, oh, I was going to mention earlier, but I forgot one of them includes journaling. Oh, right. And so you mentioned the writing process being so important. And I'm like, I know you focused on being witnessed and sharing your writing process. But, and although the Grief Refuge app can't do that, at least not yet. um, Well, you have to
0: write first in order to share anything, you got to write it down first.
1: Yeah, but there's something there to at least put thoughts um, into some kind of documentation form so that you know, that's a form of expression to getting it outside of yourself and that can aid in yeah. the healing process. But in addition to the grief refuge app, I do have a small practice, not as many clients as you see a week, but focused on grief support. And I really try to just be more of like a, a reflective listener yeah. and really do everything I can to help someone feel understood without feeling judged. That's, you know, that judgment piece for me in, in this profession is really important because I, I've i noticed that, you know, 99 and a half out of 100 grievers always feel like they're being judged. Yeah. And it's not necessary, nor is it appropriate yeah. uh, for any judgment to be placed upon a grieving soul, grieving heart, grieving mind, grieving person. So yeah. I have a small practice. And then I'm really hoping that as, my team gets more comfortable. We return to facilitating grief retreats because now we haven't even really talked about nature, but for me and my experience being in nature is almost like grief support on steroids. (laughs) It's that much more powerful. Yeah.
0: That comes up so often, but I have little pads of paper and it sounds like you and I are the same. I couldn't read for a while and now I can't stop reading. And my husband is always like, oh my God, our Amazon cart is the bleakest because it's, you know, whatever, whoever is writing a story about their own, you know, grief journey, but it comes up all the time that people feel compelled to go hiking, even though that wasn't something they grew up doing or that they, you know, my family took a big trip out to national parks, even though I had never really felt compelled to do that before. And I do, It I, there's a chapter about it in my, in my memoir. Like I, the most connected I have felt the least alone was during this big electrical storm in the Badlands. And I feel like that's why I needed to get outside is that all that's where a lot of the energy is and the bigness of the world and the littleness of the littleness of me was so comforting. Mm. And I think, you know, I try to take a walk most days and There's a lovely writer, my friend, Deborah Copagan, who wrote Lady Parts. She says practicing awe is her grief. She used to do when her dad died decades ago, she did yoga for, you know, 25 years or something like that. And she is a photographer and now she takes pictures of the most beautiful things she saw that day. And I think about that. I think about her every day when I see something beautiful, I think there it is. There's that awe. And nine times out of 10, it's when I'm outside.
1: Hmm. That's so awesome. Yeah.
0: Well, you live in a very beautiful part of the country for that. So I imagine that's part of your practice.
1: I I do feel blessed in that yeah. regard. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, it sounds like we should put in the show notes, the app and all of, you know, the contacts that people will be able to reach you and maybe talk to you about your clinical work. But the app itself, I I did download it. So I have it and I played with it a little bit beforehand. And it does just look like that thing that you need, which is to feel like there's a process, you know, when we haven't been taught what it means to grieve the handrails of someone saying, try this Hmm. is really incredibly helpful. And my folks know that I'm all about the neuroscience, the neuroscience behind breathing journaling, spending time guided meditation. I mean, it's so solid and it sounds like it's a, a life breath project for you that it's keeping you focused. And that, you know, when we talk about grieving as a verb, it's part of your, your grief journey is creating this wonderful, this wonderful yeah. thing that people can, can interact with.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that feedback. That was really meaningful. I, yeah, I, really I know it's lovely. That.
0: It's lovely. I download everybody's apps, Julia Samuel, who you may know in the UK, she wrote, you she has a beautiful app also, which goes off at like eight o'clock and 10 o'clock at night and asks me, how is my day? And I'm like, oh, it's so nice of you to ask. I, I haven't really actually interfaced with it in a long time since then, but every time it asks, like, how was your day? Are you ready for bed? I'm like, oh, it's so nice of you to ask. Thank you. My day was crap. <laughs> I am ready for bed, (laughs) but, but yeah, I hope, I hope our listeners will jump on the app and take a look at it because I do. One of the things I say about memoirs is that, you know, in the grief community, no one can write your story, but you and your style of writing and your voice and your experience may be exactly the thing that other people need, even if it's just one person, other people need to hear it. And I think about the grief tools the same. You know, there are, I get contacted by lots of people with lots of different things. And some of them, I think, oh my God, I would never do that. You know, I'm not an arts and crafts person, so I'm not going to scrapbook, but I bet somebody does, I bet somebody that had that, that is just exactly what they needed. And I think the app, because it's right there and everybody always has their phone is just a really, it's like a prescient, important and significant way to offer support to the people who are out there needing it. So I'm so grateful for your time. This was such a lovely conversation. I hope we stay connected. And like I said, I'll put in the show notes, I'll put um, a link so that people can get in touch and have an experience with the app, but keep doing the great work. I'm really grateful to know your story and to know about the resources that you're offering us. This has been really lovely.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Megan. I've really enjoyed our conversation too. And also thanks for holding space for me to share my story.
0: Yeah, that's just lovely. All right.